Okay. So thinking through creation and evolution, uh, briefly and succinctly. Haha. <laughs> um, thank you. Uh, obviously, a, a controversial issue, one that uh, often, as someone said in the questions earlier, uh, comes up uh, in evangelism. Um, but also, I'm going to do this in a way that kind of uh, exemplifies what I was talking about earlier in terms of not necessarily in apologetics immediately going for giving the answer to a question or uh, giving your own personal answer to a question. Because I think it's really useful when doing apologetics to acknowledge that different Christians have different views of certain things uh, and that this means that you do not have to have a particular understanding of one of these areas of inter-Christian disagreement in order to be a Christian. Uh, it is not the main thing, and of course in apologetics evangelism we want to keep the main thing the main thing, and that is God and Christ and life in him. Uh, not what your view on the creation-evolution controversy is. However connected to the gospel, you may or may not think uh, those issues are. Um, but you can point out to people, well, okay, I know I have my own personal view of this, or I haven't even uh, developed my view of this fully myself, but that doesn't matter because, you know, there are Christians with all sorts of views on this, and you can be a Christian without even having a view on this. So do we really need to even get into this? Um, they may want to. Uh, fine. Uh, but uh, it's worth framing things in that way, and it's worth, uh, again, just as much as we understand uh, other uh, non-Christian spiritualities and so on, uh, having a little bit of uh, inter-Christian understanding through the fact that people have uh, different sincerely held uh, views on some of these issues uh, can help uh, with uh, Christian charity. So uh, my subtitle here is three questions to ask to come to your own conclusions. Uh, now I have my own views on this, which uh, may or may not uh, percolate through slightly, uh, but my uh, main point here is not to tell you what I think the answer is. Um, you know, there will be, there is an answer. There's only one answer, it's the true answer, and all the other answers are wrong. That's the, <laughs> that's the nature of truth. Um, but here I'm not even going to attempt uh, to convince you that one is the right answer. But again, to give you a sort of framework for thinking this area through for yourselves. Point number one, start at the very beginning. Namely, uh, in the beginning, God created, Genesis 1. One or a beginning of John's gospel, uh, if you like to bring a Christological angle into it as well. Um, in other words, start with what we could call the doctrine of creation. And I'm going to distinguish between the doctrine of creation that all Christians hold in common and different models of creation that Christians differ over. So the doctrine of creation is the belief that but logos, rationality, mind, creativity, God, is the ultimate reality. That mind created matter, if you like, is the fundamental claim of theism. And this is the core of the doctrine of creation. In the doctrine of creation, we see things like this. And note that these are all points that different Christians reading Genesis who have different understandings of Genesis can nevertheless all agree that Genesis does say. 
different Christians have different understandings of what Genesis says, but there are some things that we can all agree that it's saying. We can agree that it's saying at least these things. It may or may not be saying more, but it is at least saying things like this. However God did it, God created us for a purpose. Uh, Life, therefore, does have an objective purpose and meaning uh, to bring in value aspect as well. Um, Genesis is clearly teaching things like the sun and moon are not deities, which was an important point in the cultural context. Uh, It teaches that all humans, for example, not just royalty, carry the divine image. It teaches that male and female are complementary in the image of God in humanity, in Adam. It teaches that humans have free will and moral responsibility. Genesis clearly teaches these things, whether or not it teaches other things beside. Uh, I think we've managed to make sure that it's, it's going, yeah. So, question number one is, is the doctrine of creation true? Um, if you don't think the doctrine of creation is true, getting on to other issues is pretty beside the point. Um, this is a crucial question, in that you can't be a Christian, or become a Christian, if you answer in the negative. Because that amounts to saying, God doesn't exist. And that's pretty fundamental to Christian spirituality, thinking that he does. Um, And note as well that one can discuss this question, is the doctrine of creation true, without mentioning evolution, rather even getting into that whole briar patch, Uh, say by focusing on cosmological and cosmic fine-tuning arguments. Note as well that discovering, if this were to be the case, that we discovered a physical process that produces a given result, whatever that might be, in the world, discovering such a process doesn't show that either the result of the process or the process itself was not intended by an agent. Uh, John Lennox uses the the lovely uh, example of of thinking about explaining the jet engine. It's like, well, in explaining the jet engine, if I point out, you know, we learn lots of rules about... um, thermodynamics and material science and combustion and, and so on creation of fuel into thrust and mass and all these sort of equations and everything uh, does that mean that we can dispense with mentioning Frank Whittle who was the inventor of the jet engine to explain why there are jet engines uh, well no you know, to explain why there are jet engines uh, you need Frank Whittle and knowing lots about the process of how a jet engine works doesn't disprove the existence of Frank Whittle. Uh, so here is a physical process that leads to there being a, a certain amount of boiling water uh, in the room. Um, does that mean uh, I don't want a cup of tea? <laughs> or that I want a cup of tea is actually part of the explanation of why this process is going on. No, it doesn't. So minds can create, and they can create directly, or they can create indirectly, 
and discovering a material process or a blind watchmaker, as Richard Dawkins calls the process of evolution, doesn't necessarily contradict belief in a blind watchmaker maker. Discovering a blind watchmaker doesn't contradict belief in a blind watchmaker maker, you see. Richard Swinburne, a famous British Christian philosopher, um, even makes this argument and says, even if uh, you take evolution as true, that doesn't rule out making an argument from evolution to the existence of God. And he puts it like this. He says, uh, men make not only machines, but machine-making machines. I reference you the picture of the car factory here. Uh, they may therefore naturally infer from nature, which produces animals and plants, to a creator of nature, similar to men, who make machine-making machines. Maybe there is a a strong analogy between nature and uh, the sort of machine-making machines that men and women uh, can come up with. Um, Now, there is some nitty-gritty in that debate uh, about exactly the meaning of randomness in evolution and how that figures in that kind of argument and so on. Um, But that's uh, a step of detail beyond... um, the slides that I have, although you can ask me about them later if you want to. <laughs> so, science does not, to use the Richard Dawkins subtitle of the blind watchmaker, reveal a world without design. I think this is the basic point. That it's naturalistic atheism that demands a world without design. And there's a difference between science and naturalistic atheism. They're not the same thing. Even though many people today interpret science within a naturalistic atheistic worldview. And many people may assume that they go hand in hand. They don't, and certainly, certainly didn't, historically speaking. So Alvin Plantinga is probably the most famous philosopher of religion in America and a Christian to boot. Uh, in his book, Where the Conflict Really Lies, um, or um, Science, Religion and Naturalism there, that's a recent publication of his. He's done a lot of thinking on this uh, issue. Uh, he says this in... Uh, Science and religion, are they compatible? Uh, The claim that evolution demonstrates that human beings and other living creatures have not, contrary to appearances, been designed, is is not part of or a consequence of the scientific theory of evolution as such. But it is rather a metaphysical or theological add-on. Naturalism and evolutionary theory together imply the denial of divine design but evolutionary theory by itself doesn't have that implication so the second question I think should be framed like this question one is the doctrine of creation true question two if we don't assume that the doctrine of creation is false or true does the evidence that we have suggest evolution is an adequate explanation of biological diversity or is there a better explanation? So you see, we're not stacking the deck one way or another in approaching the question, is evolution true? Now, this question is an interesting and no doubt important question, but it is not a crucial question. You can be a Christian without having an answer to that question. In other words, how God created is very much secondary to the fact that God created. 
And if we approach this question about evolution, we may think we have a sort of range of options of concluding it when it might be a wholly adequate theory. Uh, or it might be a more or less partially adequate theory. Um, but I would argue that the right way to find out is to let the evidence speak for itself without stacking the deck one way or the other beforehand. And I would say many materialists like Dawkins stack the deck in favour of evolution being true by basically saying, and indeed sometimes explicitly saying, well, it must be true because the only alternative explanation is that God did it. You know, and that, we all know that's stupid. Therefore, evolution must be true. Um, you, you, indeed, in one place Dawkins says, you can see that it must be true from your armchair which is generally the position taken by philosophers rather than scientists. We're a much more sedentary species. <coughs> but also, though, as Philip Johnson um, in Darwin on Trial points out, uh, mean perhaps approaching the evidence, scientifically speaking, without already having in mind a particular reading of Scripture. As he says, young earth creationists do. He says they stack the deck just as much as materialists, because they, they, they move from, generally speaking, here's how I interpret what the Bible is claiming about reality. Now, I'm, now I must go to reality and find evidence that fits that picture. And he says, well, that's what materialists do. And if we want to object to that approach, then we also have to sort of not stack the deck in our favour, as it were, in the favour of a particular interpretation of scripture when we go out. We should do the, the looking at nature bit first in the sort of order of thinking, as it were. It's an interesting point. I recommend um, Johnson's Darwin on trial to you. So this will, for those of you who know the terminology, reject methodological naturalism. So naturalism is the worldview, the claim that it's true that nature is all there is, there's only material things. Methodological naturalism is a uh, is a, a way of defining science or approaching doing science that says, okay, to do science, you don't have to believe that naturalism is true, but when you're doing science, you must behave as if naturalism were true. So any sci- anything that's scientific must be consistent with the truth of naturalism, whether or not naturalism is true. And you'll find many people will just define science in that kind of a way, or indeed define history in that kind of a way. Um, but increasingly today, the philosophers of science, and so on, even amongst the atheists, are questioning that building-in assumption to science that you must do it as if naturalism were true, primarily because they some point out that, well, OK, that wouldn't be a problem if naturalism is true, but didn't we ought to at least be open to the possibility that it's not? And shouldn't science be about discovering what's true rather than about discovering, I don't know, the best theory we can come up with that's subject to the rule that the theories we come up with must be consistent with naturalism? Because doing that, looking for that theory, the best theory we can come up with that's consistent with naturalism being true, isn't necessarily the same thing as looking for which theory is true. (laughs) and it's more important that science is about looking for truth than it is that we define it in a certain way that's consistent with a certain worldview 
So Plantinga gives this advice. He says, a Christian, of course, naturally believes that God's created and sustains the world. Starting from this position, starting from the doctrine of creation, we recognise that there are many ways in which God could have created the living things he has, in fact, created. Question, how, in fact, did he do it? Did it all happen just by way of the workings of the laws of physics? Or was there, say, further divine activity involved? That's the question. Starting from the belief in God, we must look at the evidence and consider the probabilities as best we can. But again, see that he's, he's starting from the doctrine of creation, but he's not starting from a particular model of creation, and then going and looking. And it's really useful to notice that evolution means a whole plethora of different things. Here's six different things that are meant by the term evolution that all together are covered by the term evolution. And indeed I've ranked them from what uh, many uh, informed thinkers would say is the most probable claim on the list down at the bottom to the least probable claim on the list. Uh, and that's not just to reference Christian thinkers. There are even atheist thinkers I could point you to, and I indeed I will in a moment, that question certain elements of this. But this is what um, Plantinga calls the grand evolutionary story. Um, the ancient Earth, Earth hypothesis, that the Earth is about 4.5 billion years old, and we're in a universe that's about 14 billion years old or whatever. The progress hypothesis, life has changed over time. It used to be a long time ago relatively, relatively simple. And nowadays there's lots more relatively complex things. And that's happened over a period of time. Um, the common ancestry hypothesis that every form of life that is around today is related by a family tree, by common ancestry, to different forms of life. And back and back and back and back to the origin. Well, that would be the claim of universal common ancestry. So you could say there is everything that's alive today is related by common ancestry, but that's not quite the same claim as saying every living thing is related by common ancestry, that life originated at only one place, as it were, and all subsequent forms of life are related by common ancestry to that one original simple form of life. That's called universal common ancestry, and there are a number of atheist scientists who doubt that today. Then we have the Darwinian hypothesis, the, the particular contribution of Charles Darwin. This is a, a material explanation for the development of life over time from simple to complex. And that explanation that he gives is simply an extrapolation of what we can observe to be a reality what some people call microevolution, we can observe that species have little changes between them and that some of those changes get passed on and others don't and so on and that you can change, if you do selective breeding and so on, you can change certain qualities that a life form has by breeding it and so on. And um, Charles Darwin said, well, maybe over long periods of time, uh, nature kind of stands in for the intelligent aid of the, of the breeder through the fact that these life forms are competing for survival on the basis of limited resources and those that are more fitted to surviving will of course tend to out-compete 
the ones who are less fitted in the circumstances, and so their genes will their well he didn't know about genes, but their their type of uh, qualities will get spread, and so on. Now that extrapolation from microevolution to that process explains the whole caboodle is the, the, the macroevolutionary Darwinian claim. And then you have the naturalistic origins hypothesis, the idea that life arose from non-living matter by virtue of nothing but the ordinary laws of physics and chemistry, that there was no additional input of intelligence uh, involved. So when someone asks me, do you believe in evolution? <laughs> I, I would not answer with a yes or a no. As much as it would make me sound like a politician, perhaps, I would say, well, evolution means a lot of different things to different people. What do you mean by it? Just ask a question about it. And let me clarify, what, what are you asking me? Because actually this word means a lot of different stuff. I would distinguish a number of different claims that make up the claim of evolution. Uh, some of these are tied together, but some of them you could doubt individual elements on this list and believe other elements on the list. Um, so, you know, if I doubt two or three of these, do I still believe in evolution or not? Well, it depends what you mean by, you know. So, um, famous atheist turned theist in his latter years, Anthony Flew. Um, his book there uh, with the, uh, the crossed out, no, there is a God, uh, his uh, last testament, as he called it. He, uh, he became a, a theist in his later years, although not a Christian, uh, but he said that the more that was discovered about the richness and inherent intelligence of life, the less it seemed likely that a chemical soup could magically generate the genetic code. So he's talking about the naturalistic origins thesis. He said the best confirmation of this radical gulf is Richard Dawkins' comical effort to argue in The God Delusion that the origin of life can be attributed to a lucky chance. If that's the best argument you have, then the game's over. So, as an atheist, he started doubting the naturalistic origins hypothesis and actually thinking that there was an argument there that pointed towards the existence of God, and that was one of the reasons why he changed his mind on the issue. Well, more recently... He remains an atheist. It's a famous American atheist philosopher called Thomas Nagel. And he published a little book called Mind and Cosmos with a fascinating subtitle. Remember, this is a famous, respected American philosopher of mind. And the subtitle of his book is Why the Materialist Neo-Darwinian Conception of Nature is Almost Certainly False. And in that book, he says this, for example... The dominant scientific consensus faces problems of probability that I believe are not taken seriously enough, both with respect to the evolution of life forms through accidental mutation and natural selection, and with respect to the formation from dead matter of physical systems capable of such evolution. So you see, he's doubting two of our items on our list. The more we learn about the intricacy of the genetic code and its control of the chemical processes of life, the harder those problems seem. The coming into existence of the genetic code seems particularly resistant to being revealed as probable given physical law alone. Or the atheist philosopher of science called Bradley Monton, who wrote a book called Seeking God in Science, an Atheist Defends Intelligent Design. Well, partially defends intelligent design at least. Uh, he says this, 
He concludes, intelligent design arguments need to be taken more seriously than a lot of its opponents are willing to do. The arguments do have some force. They make me less certain of my atheism than I would be had I not heard the arguments. I think there is some evidence for an intelligent designer, and in fact I think there's some evidence that the intelligent designer is God. It's just that he thinks he has weightier counter-reasons, counter-evidence to believing in God. He'd think he would appeal to the problem of evil, say. But still, interesting to see. And there's, there's a lot more of that kind of stuff going on uh, in the, uh, the academic world at the moment in the last decade. So if you had answers to our first two questions, then I think you'd be in a good position to ask a third question, which model of creation is the most plausible? Now, again, this is an interesting and perhaps important question, but it's not a crucial question, and you can be a Christian without having an answer. You can be agnostic about this. Uh, a model of creation is an attempt to, to coherently put together or integrate the Christian doctrine of creation with a particular scientific interpretation of the book of nature and a particular theological interpretation of the book of God, of what scriptures tell us about creation. So you're trying to put together a lot of disparate fields of knowledge. And that's one of the reasons why this is a difficult thing to do. (laughs) Because very few of us know about stuff in all of those fields, or are experts in in thinking about how to put them together. Um, Think of the the different disciplines that you'd have to be really expert in uh, to think that you really had a handle on this question Um, it's rather daunting so we could diagram what's going on here like this, we've got the doctrine of creation in the middle there that all Christians hold in common and then we have various overlapping to various degrees, different models of creation that Christians differ on and there are again a wide range of views amongst Bible believing Christians here Um, you could say talk about intelligent design theory which is in fact compatible with a wide range of views so um, intelligent design theory is the idea that um, that we have some reliable tests that we can apply to things and if those things pass the test that, that these tests reliably tell us that there was intelligence involved in the creation of something you think you've got some sort of test that you can apply to things to tell that intelligent activity was involved in its creation, and you think that you can apply those tests to things in nature that pass through the tests, and if you think that doing that is legitimately called science, then you support intelligent design theory. But then, you know, that that doesn't tell me, if I know that you support intelligent design, that doesn't tell me whether or not you're a young earth creationist or not. You may be, you may not be whether you're sort of Hugh Ross, old earth creationist or not. You may be, you may not be. I don't know. So it's compatible with, with a, a variety of sub-views, as it were. Like young earth, or indeed within a sort of old earth creationism, at least if we take creationism in, in, in terms of the idea of believing in the doctrine of creation, so-called theistic evolutionists, they're, they're a sort of old earth creationist. Um, and indeed, there's a variety of different theistic evolutionary views as well. So there's lots of different options out there to choose from. And we may not have even thought of all the options yet. Yeah. 
By young earth and old earth, are you talking about young earth defining how old the earth is on genealogy? In yes, world, yeah. Old earth being by like carbon dating and... Right, dating. yeah. So the young earth creationists uh, typically believe that uh, correctly interpreting the Bible means uh, that we should conclude that the earth is between six to 10,000 years old. And old earth creationists don't. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, a, a large part of that is down to different theological readings, but also it's down to disagreements about the, the physical evidence. So young earth creationists will question the reliability of carbon dating methods, for example. For the young earth as well, though, because mm-hmm. they only date it from when humans were on the earth. That's where they've dated it from, isn't it? As far as my knowledge is. But they, obviously, that's what their seven-day creation... Right, so yes, this is why it's sometimes called um, six-day creationist, six-day young earth creationist. So you, you date that back to the... And you take, you take Adam and Eve as being the first people as well, and then you take six days before that, and that's when... And by day, you mean a literal 24-hour period of time. And so, yeah, you're like, well, about 6,000 or 10,000 odd years ago. So you could be an older creationist and believe in the genealogy side. Yes. Not be a six-day creationist. Absolutely, yeah. So if you didn't take the days as as talking about literal 24-hour days, there are people who believe in a literal Adam and Eve, for example, who could believe that they were the first people, but who think that the the Earth is 3.4 billion years old. Yeah, and so on. So there's a lot of, you know... Mm -hmm. A lot of different issues that can be disagreed about, and therefore a sort of plethora of slightly different views that people hold. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, and this this should be encouraging to you because Alvin Plantinga, if you've not heard of him before, but he, he really was. He was the he's retired now, but he was the foremost philosopher of religion, Christian philosopher of religion in America. He worked at the University of Notre Dame, although that's a Catholic university, but he's not Catholic, which is one of the leading. Uh, departments of philosophy of religion in America. He's shaped the, the conversation in philosophy of religion over the last 50 years. Leading figure. Alvin Plantinga says, the proper understanding of the early chapters of Genesis is a difficult area, an area where I am not sure where the truth lies. <laughs> okay. Um, I would say something similar. I'm still thinking through the, poss- the, the plurality of views uh, in this area. Um, I could much more certainly tell you what I don't, what views I don't hold to, than tell you what view I do hold to, <laughs> as it were. Um, so that would be an encouragement to you. Um, and final quote uh, to go back to one of the uh, early church fathers, Saint Augustine in the fourth, fifth century, in his book, uh, note the title of his book, "The Literal Meaning of Genesis." Now, when uh, you talked about the literal meaning of a text back in the day. What you meant was the me- re- understanding the meaning of a text by taking into account the type of literature that it is. So is this literature metaphorical or poetic or sim- talking in symbols? Or is it meant to be taken as a what we would call a literal, straightforward kind of historical, scientific description, and so on. So, people, what people have meant by literal over time has actually changed. Um, so he means understanding Genesis according to the kind of literature that it is. And he says this: in matters that are obscure and far beyond our vision, even in such as we may find treated in Holy Scripture. 
different interpretations are sometimes possible without prejudice to the faith we have received. These difficult, different interpretations are all consistent with Christian doctrine that defines being a Christian, uh, with the creeds of the church and so on, uh, and they're consistent with you know, being a born-again Christian, etc., Different interpretations are sometimes possible without prejudice to the faith we've received. In such a case, we should not rush headlong and so firmly take our stand on one side rather than another of a contentious issue if that if further progress in the search for truth justly undermines this position, we too fall with it. We should be of such a mind that if our favoured model of creation, should we have one, falls, we don't fall into the trap of thinking oh, so the Bible's wrong. Because that doesn't follow. (laughs) If our interpretation of what it's saying is wrong, that doesn't mean what it's saying is wrong. It could mean that we misunderstood what it was saying. (laughs) Uh, And particularly in an issue where you notice that other Christians who, you know, (laughs) seem to be Christians and orthodox in their doctrine and so on, um, differ. Um, so that is a, 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 a useful word of caution uh, from the early church there on this subject area. Okay, let's just take uh, five uh, questions on that area before we plough on to our last topic. Assuming that it would be legit to say that you could be like a young or older nation, creationism, uh, believe in one of those, but also intelligent design theory, because obviously that doesn't actually, that just says like the time period, that's not actually necessarily how it was created. Right, almost, um, because intelligent design theory, although it, it tends to go with accepting the generally accepted datings of, of the universe. But that's because it's not, it's really not about scriptural interpretation. It's not starting with a particular interpretation of scripture and then bringing that framework to understanding what we're doing in science. It's just starting with the idea that we think we've got some tests for intelligent activity that some things at least in nature pass through. And that noting that is scientific. Um, so there, are, so there are there are young earth creationists who are also part and parcel of the intelligent design movement, but in the uh, you know the journalists of the world will always in the same breath sort of brand intelligent design and creationism and they, people talk about intelligent design creationism as if it 's sort of all the same thing and, and you 're right it 's not at all so yeah you could be young or old earth and be intelligent design, you can disagree with intelligent design and be young or old earth. Yeah, our starting place 
And of course, sort of, we all do start in a place, probably. Um, but I, I think I think I'm with Johnson in, in thinking that when we're trying to just ask the the evidential scientific question, there's merit in trying to start out by letting the evidence speak for itself, as it were, a point where it will. And then approaching the task of integrating what we learn from the book of nature with what we're reading in the book of scripture. Um, Rather than starting with a particular model a contentious understanding or reading of, of scripture. So, I mean, in the Nittany and Plantinga, what he did, he said Christians should do is we start with the doctrine of creation in mind, that's fine. We can think to ourselves, what we're asking is how did God do it? Um, and really, we've got two sources of information on that, potentially. Looking at the world through science and looking at scripture through hermeneutics. And then there is a sort of interplay, a conversation between the science and the theology that needs to go on. And he would certainly say you, you, shouldn't, you should no more assume that if there's an apparent conflict between those two perspectives that you end up with, that the scientific perspective must trump the theological. He says... And J.P. Mullen's good on this, this as well. He says, well, you might, you might think, okay, this, what science tells me and what theology tells me do seem to be at odds. You know? um, well, what if they are? Maybe the, I've got really good, strong reasons for thinking that what theology is telling me is true and comparatively weak reasons for believing what science is telling me. So it would be perfectly rational to go with what theology says. <laughs> Um, you don't have to assume that you know science is carries, always carries the, the trump card in the conversation. They're both sources of knowledge that need to be weighed in, and integrated as much as as possible. Um, but if there's an apparent conflict, that may be because I've misunderstood scripture, or I've misunderstood reality, or I've misunderstood both of them. Um, you know, the the last position that we go to, obviously, is saying you know there's a real contradiction between the facts of nature and what scripture is claiming because then then that would have knock on effects on your at least on your doctrine of scripture um, wouldn't necessarily immediately push you to thinking Christianity is false but to say it would certainly have an impact on your theology of the inspiration and uh, infallibility of scripture something like that uh, yes these, well these two well, you first right first and then left <laughs> Would you be able to use this theory for pretty much any scientific thing that came up that caused controversy? Yes, I think so. Yeah, I think so. It's the the the, the general point of uh, f- focusing on on Christian doctrine, what you need to believe in order to be a Christian, and if some objection is being thrown up that's against something that you don't have to believe in order to be a Christian, then that's really worth noting. And perhaps being able to set aside that issue and say, well, maybe you can come back to that later, but you don't have to deal with this before making further progress towards the question that really matter about who Jesus is or what have you. Um, so I think certainly that bit of advice will hold uh, across, the, across the board, yeah. Uh, you've already been touching on it, but 
Mm. Perhaps you could elaborate slightly in that um, what Augustine said about you know um, setting yourself up so that if your interpretation of scripture turns out to be wrong, that's okay. Mm. Um, and would you say that's equally true of science in that all science is yeah. correct until it's disproven? <laughs> yeah. Sort of. Yeah. Um, and also, would there ever be a to make it slightly more personal? Mm. Um, would there ever be a scientific argument or proof or something that you heard that you mm. thought, okay, God can't exist? Or is your belief such that science will never persuade you otherwise? Oh, gosh. Um, that's several questions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if I remember, and if I remember all of them. Um, the, the last question that you asked... Uh, was, was framed in terms of my personal psychology. Does it, would there ever be an issue that might make me lose my belief or whatever? But the real question, of course, is uh, is there potential for there to be a situation where I should lose my belief? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, all sorts of things might happen that would make me lose my belief, but I may or may not be right in giving up my belief. Um, in, in the circumstances. So I think, um, I don't know if I can think of a particular example off, off, off the top of my head, but I, I think that we as Christians should be open to the possibility of being wrong. Um, I think to say, I, you know, I, I think this Christianity stuff is, is true, <laughs> but I could be wrong about that. Um, I am, I am committed, as a Christian, you see, to Christ, but Christ is the Logos of God, and God is the God of truth, and Christ cares about truth. He says, you know, I am the way and the truth and the life of God revealed, and so on. He makes certain truth claims, and St. Paul says things like, if there is no resurrection of the dead, if we're wrong about this, then we should stop being Christians. You know, why be a Christian if there's no resurrection of the dead? But there is a resurrection of the dead, so we should be Christians, you know, he adds. But there he's saying, you know, if it were proved that we are liars about God, you know, well then treat us as, as such. Um, so I, I think there's... Um, a commitment to truth is bound up in a commitment to God and to Christ. And I don't think those two commitments pull apart. I think they pull together. Um, but were they to ever pull apart genuinely, again, should I say, well, I give up my commitment to truth then because I just happen to like Christianity? Um, but then how would I treat an atheist who made the same response to me in the face of an argument for believing in Jesus like <laughs> you know so um, again part of treating others as I would wish to be treated and vice versa is I think bound up in this co commitment to, um, to kind of playing it by the rules and, and taking note of, of truth and arguments and reason and, and so on um, that said, I would want to point you to, again, Alvin Plantinga and, at least in part, William Lane Craig's work on um, 
the sort of testimony of the Holy Spirit in the believer's heart. Um, and I don't, I don't think I would go the, the whole way that Bill Craig goes. If you probably know what I'm uh, with this, but um, um, Alvin Plantinga talks about the way in which um, we have lots of beliefs that we hold just because it just seems natural and obvious to us that things are true, and we don't always have to go through some sort of argument or process of arguing and evidence in our minds to believe something. Now, I believe I had a cup of tea earlier, just because I remember. I believe there's a car outside the window, just because it looks like there's one, and so on. Okay, I could be in the matrix, it could all be an illusion, I could be wrong, but the burden of proof is on the sceptic, not on me. I don't have to make the argument to be entirely reasonable in believing all sorts of things. And Plantinga says, you know, believing your religious experience and the witness of the Holy Spirit in the believer's heart and so on is like that. And, and, it, and we'll point out that such beliefs, like, oh, look, there's a car, are actually pretty resistant to apparent contradictory evidence. So it says, imagine yourself hauled before court who um, accuse you of having committed murder this morning. Okay? And you think to yourself, but you know, I remember what I was doing this morning. I, I didn't murder anyone. But unfortunately for you, you don't have a good alibi. No one with, was with you. No one saw you. And a series of witnesses get up in the witness box and swear on the Bible to tell the truth and say, yeah, I saw you do it. And then they, you know, so do you have to think to yourself, oh, well, I must have murdered someone then. Or do you think to yourself, someone's trying to frame me. <laughs> See, which is the more... Okay, there might come a point, I think, with the, that sort of illustration, where you start thinking, oh, gosh, you know, maybe I've, I've gone mad. Maybe someone brainwashed me. Maybe something happened and I, I did do this and I've forgotten. Or, you know. But it would probably take quite a lot to get you to that point. Uh, even in terms of you know, apparent forensic evidence being produced against you and so on. Um, so I think that is a line of thought worth thinking about in, in this area. Um, but I don't, want to, I don't think I want to pursue that to the point of saying I can't even conceive of any situation whereby I, I would think to myself, yeah, I ought to change my mind. Um, <laughs> hmm. Yeah, this would be, better be the last one. We touched there on about um, what we should put first, whether you know, we work with God or mm. scientific discoveries. I don't know, I would just say, I think we should be very careful, and if we believe the word of God is God's word, the inspired word, which doesn't change, mm. we obviously may disagree on how we mm. view that. But if we go on actual, we let science interpret the word of God, mm. then scientific theories shift and change the time. And every yeah. scientist comes at it with their own bias. Yeah. You can see it in the, those statements that people make. Mm. That, mm. Oh, but there is, you know, there must be a God, but I'm still an atheist because I'm coming at it. Mm. And of course, the Christian scientists do the same thing. Mm. And mm. I think, I think there was a shift when evolutionary thought came mm. in. That was when we started to change our uh, reading of Genesis. And I think that's been, I would say, fairly detrimental mm. to our society. And, the views now creeping around euthanasia and abortion mm. and things, it becomes, and I think it's, I don't know, I, I myself mm. think I'm a, I'm a seven day 
creationist, mm -hmm. uh, is evidence for that. But also, I think also, you know, I think the, the genesis is very precious in giving us our morals and mm. know, how life should be. So I think we've got to be careful about what we need. Oh, actually, mm. this is the new theory, so it has to shift genesis again. Yeah, yeah. Sort of stuff, so careful. Yeah, thank you for those comments. I, th I think... I realise that was just a statement, sorry. No, no, that's, that's fine. I, I can respond to... <laughs> that's fine. Um, yeah, I think, as I say, that, that there's, there's a conversation that then happens between these, t these different sources of knowledge in the Christian's life. And um, it's perhaps not straightforward to just sort of diagram what that relationship is, as it were. But there's, I mean, some people have talked about this, the hermeneutical spiral as we put these things in conversation with, with each other. Um, but um, I, I do think Johnson makes a good point about just as much as it's actually the many scientists' philosophy of the world and philosophy of science that has warped their, shaped their, under, their reading of nature rather than it actually that reading coming from what nature itself tells us, as it were. And, and equally, you can approach the science with, uh, let's say, a, a sort of dogmatic commitment to a particular reading that's not open to the conversation, just as much as a Richard Dawkins can approach the question of evolution with a dogmatic commitment to materialism, at least. And um, certainly we want to be, I think, leery of dogmatic commitments on either side that the warp the reading. There needs to be the conversation. We need to be open to the conversation happening. I think so. that, that's what I'm saying. And that it's, I would say, it's primarily the, full, the philosophical leanings that have produced the bad results from reading of evolution and thrall, you know, putting it into a 19th century um, understanding evolution as progress worldview that then leads into some of the eugenics stuff, for example. Um, that is more at fault than the, the, the scientific theory being at, at, at fault there. Um, and I'm, I'm not convinced that of the, the idea that um, we, I mean, some people may have, but the, the church as a whole sort of changed its reading of the creation passages in scripture because of Darwin. Um, I think there's, it's a more complicated story than that. Um, and you can look back to uh, the way in which um, the early church writers and, and the Jewish rabbinic tradition of interpretation and so on, um, at the very least, had, had an openness to a sort of mixture of symbolism and history in what was, in what was going on in those passages. Um, and, and yes, I absolutely agree with you about the importance of Genesis to a lot of the moral issues as well. I mean, definition of marriage and so on. And Jesus points back to you know, the two becoming one in Genesis and so on. But uh, again, I think those are all issues that uh, Christians across the board can agree that Genesis is telling those things, telling us those things, um, whether or not it's additionally telling us stuff that we need to integrate into our sort of scientific description of what happened, as it were. Um, it can still be telling us those important things that we can agree that it's telling us. Um, the, the disagreement is over 
um, what else, if anything, it's telling us. <laughs> um, I think. Yeah.